Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. I'm Barney Hoskins and I'm here on Planet Zoom with Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney. And Jasper Mirison Bowie. Hello, Barney. And after last week's episode with the fantastic Mr. Fox, it's just the three of us <laughs> today. But boy, do we have a show for you. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be talking a little later about another Roxback Pages Fox, the splendidly named Ray Fox coming. But mainly today, we'll be talking about Island Records, the label that gave us incredible artists like Millie, Jimmy Cliff, John Martin, Bob Marley, Roxy Music, and not forgetting Sparks, who we'll discuss in greater detail. Mark, yeah. what was your first awareness of this hallowed label? Yeah, I mean, not the reggae years, because I wasn't buying reggae records outside of My Boy Lollipop, Pop, which wasn't released on Island, even though it was an Island That was on production. Fontana, wasn't it? It was that's licensed that, to Fontana. That, that's right. So it would have been, I guess, around 68, 69. The albums my friends had to roll joints on. King Crimson and the Court of the Crimson King being particularly one of them. Did people roll better joints on Island albums? Uh, yes. Or would you so say they... Vertigo was the best label? Club? No, I, I'd say Island because a lot of them were gatefold sleeves, which made them a bit yeah. stiffer. So ah, that once yes. you've stuck your three rizzles together, it's a more stable platform. Makes sense. <laughs> listen That's just and, science. Listen and learn, Jasper. Yeah. <laughs> I adored bands like Free. I mean, Free were absolutely one of my favourite yeah. bands back in those days, and they were absolutely an Island band. Yes. You know, I knew nothing about the music business in those days. I knew nothing about the difference between an independent label like them and a major label like EMI, because, for example, Pink Floyd are on EMI, I do believe, you know. So there wasn't that sort of division that we now are very aware of, the difference between a real kind of creatively run label like Island and uh, the old-fashioned machines of the EMIs and Deckers of this world. They always had great artwork. They signed a lot of interesting people. There's a lot of stuff I couldn't stand as well. I mean, King Crimson, I never exactly kind of, got into but there's just something kind of very fresh and, and and well put together about everything that island did it, it was a label that stood out i mean i'm i started buying island records i would guess it would have been kind of 72 73 yeah. the, probably the first island albums that i bought would have been John Martin's Solid Air, maybe. Yes, and, yes. And, oh, and, what an album. Yeah. It's one of my favourite albums And probably Virginia Plain, the wonderful. single, Roxy Music's Virginia Plain, as a single. And I, I mean, just the label, it, it already somehow stood out, the logo. I, I just thought it was very cool. It was yeah. distinctive. It was, it was kind of different from the major labels. Absolutely. And it seemed to, I mean, I think one's always in danger of investing perhaps in a slightly sentimental way, perhaps too much into these, you know, essentially they're just, they're just businesses, aren't they? Yeah. But then it's because we, we, we care so much about music that we invest a label like Island with this kind of almost like this personality. I think rightly so. I mean, we're going to talk very shortly about our audio interviews with Island boss, Chris Blackwell. And one thing about him, like the, Jerry Wexler's of this world, is that he was a proper record man. He was a proper music guy. You know, yes, he wanted his label to make money. Yes, he wanted success. But he had a very clear sort of notion. He he loved artists who were going to bring something to the label. It wasn't just simply a transaction. Yes. He never 
walked away from his love of reggae. He got, I mean, he's from Jamaica. He's a exactly. white, he's a white posh plantation white Jamaican. Plantation to, Jamaican. And let's yeah. not forget, went to Harrow. Yeah. <laughs> so basically, but, but, Harrow's role in the reggae, the global <laughs> reggae revolution, <laughs> 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 but I, I remember that, that they were very early on in it i'm in 77 for my 21st birthday a friend of mine bought me the 12 inch island pre of king tubby meets the roots rockers uptown yeah you know which was just dropped an amazing piece of dub reggae you know that was always there he, ne- he never abandoned his jamaican roots in that respect and we will talk about his relationship with bob marley when we get more into yeah. the audio thing. But yeah, absolutely. after that, it became a bit more diffuse. They, I mean, brilliant stuff like Grace Jones. I mean, Grace Jones, you know, the, the absolutely. stuff she did on Ireland. Mm. And, and she was a sort of, in, in so many ways, such a perfect Ireland artist, wasn't she? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I she, she made that track, My Jamaican Guy, it sort of, <laughs> it kind of brought the whole Ireland story full circle. It's a very interesting article about his studio. What, what was the name of his studio? Compass Point, yeah? Compass yeah. Point. No, no, uh, that, well, he yes. used Compass Point. No, Did he it, own it, it? It was his... Because it was in the Bahamas, wasn't it? And he wanted that to be like a Muscle Shoals or something. He wanted yeah. it to be a place which had that own characteristic with its own house band of Sly and Robbie, Wally Badaroo and all those guys, yeah? Didn't quite come off. But when it worked, it worked really, really well. And those three Grace Jones albums done, done at Compass Point are... are just some of the best music ever, I think. You know, I mean, it's just astonishingly good stuff. Fantastic. Back in Black was recorded at Compass Point as What's well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, one I, of the best engineered reggae, albums one ever. One of the best well. reggae albums yeah. of all time. Well, I mean, some great, <laughs> some fantastic That's sounding I didn't records. Know that. Yeah. Yes. But yeah. some fantastic sounding records came out of it. Yeah. But I think Blackwell really saw it as being his Muscle Shoals or his Stacks, and it didn't quite work out like that. But yeah. Yeah. anyway. Yeah, we love Ireland. Well, so the, the first clip that we've chosen Mark, is is really interesting because it talks about how you know on the one hand Blackwell's managing rock artists, and on the other, you know Ireland is still essentially about kind of reggae music, yeah. Jamaican oh, it's, music, it's and the, yeah, yeah, it's it's about that decision to move. I mean, he ran Ireland as a reggae record label, managed rock artists, and that's he made a decision which a lot of people were telling him you know, you can't really do this, Yeah, is I'm going to start, make Ireland a rock, or what he calls a pop label, which involved bringing in the bands like, as I said, King Crimson, Spooky Tooth. Yeah, Traffic, Freedoms. obviously. Yeah. 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 So, the, so, yeah, this, this, this is him talking about Ireland as a pop label. In 1967 was the year that I decided to change my focus really because up until that time I was running a record company which specialized in Jamaican music and I was managing rock and roll acts, Spencer Davis Group and then uh, other groups from that included Joe Cocker and Spooky Tooth, Free and I decided around this period, 67, 68, that rather than be a manager who put out their acts on this record company, I would change my focus and sort of get out of management 
and concentrate really on building the record company. But the thing I was nervous about was the name Ireland. I didn't think Ireland was a good name for a pop record company because Ireland was so associated in my mind's eye and I felt with the public's eye uh, so associated with the Jamaican music that it wouldn't really have a credibility. So <coughs> I sort of deliberated a long time about this and then decided well, what I would do is I would start a new fresh pop label and make it extremely pop and make the label pink and the whole image of it pink and everything else like that. So this was a concentrated effort to change the image of Ireland into being a pop image. Yeah, you know, it's very interesting. Obviously, I think the, where he was wrong is that he was looking at the existing market for Island Records and worrying whether the people who listen to rock and roll records would confuse the two. And actually, in a way, they were so separate that he could then create a new Island Records with bands like Free and Spooky Tooth and so on and so forth, and it was seamless. He was wrong to be anxious, actually, I think, about that. Well, of course, he did a deal, didn't he, with Joe Boyd's Witch Season That's Productions, right. which brought in all these, you know, I think pretty amazing, like, folk and folk rock artists. So that was a really important strand, wasn't it? Wasn't it Drake on Island? Or... Absolutely. He yeah, was on, that... So he was, you know, not an Island artist who, who sold any records in his lifetime, his short lifetime, but, but subsequently, of course, has done. Which, again, points to something that Blackwell had, which the best record men had and the worst really didn't, is that if someone didn't hit immediately, he would try and try and try again. Yes, yes. You know, if he was convinced, as he was convinced with Nick Drake and he was convinced with John Martin, for example, mm. that they would eventually do something, you know. Yes. Anyway, so, I mean, yes. in, 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 he kind of goes back, he talks about My Boy Lollipop, Jimmy Cliff and The Harder They Come, and that takes us straight through to the next clip because he... I had never knew this. He had a dispute with Jimmy Cliff, and Jimmy Cliff left the label. Mm. And it was almost exactly that time when he first met. And I always assumed he'd met Bob Marley before in Jamaica, but he hadn't. So this is about him meeting Marley for the first time and seeing an opportunity there, a way of changing the way reggae was recorded and... And marketed, of course. And marketed, yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Well, in fact, I met Bob Marley in England first, even though I'd released some of his records <clears throat> as early as 1964, 5. I'd got some records up from Jamaica and, you know, put them out. But I'd never met Bob. And then I met him in 1972 in London in the office in Basing Street. And he was on his way back from Scandinavia where he had gone on a some tour or some film thing with Johnny Nash and it had collapsed and they were stranded and somebody told me that Bob Marley was in town which was actually two weeks after Jimmy Cliff and I fell out and he left Ireland and so I was sort of full of energy to get behind an artist which in a sense was the character from The Harder They Come because I wanted Jimmy Cliff really to be that character in real life as it were 
but he was off on a different tangent and anyhow so we fell out at that time and then as I say two weeks or so later I heard uh, Bob Marley was in town so I met him again I liked him right away and uh, you know I felt we could really work together and um, his first record I, I think is one of the best records we've ever put out it's called Catch a Fart fascinating isn't it it is i mean to put this in it's context really interesting. It's, you know this is recorded in 1989 this interview not long after blackhall has sold island to polygram so he's kind of looking back slightly nostalgically perhaps slightly regretfully but you know he's had his big payday which which of course he was going to have which any of us would have had and fascinating to hear him talk about marley because marley is you know, one of the emblematic island artists. Absolutely. And, and just, it makes so much sense, doesn't it, that, that Blackwell's intuition was that this guy, this guy really was almost like a rock star. Yeah. And I mean, actually, one of the first island albums I bought was, was Catch a Fire. Yeah. And it was very much that sense. I mean, I, mean, I had heard reggae records of Dandy Livingston and, yeah. you know, Bob and Marcia, these, you know, the blue beaten hits that, that we'd known in this country. But, but that sleeve, that remarkable, like, flip-top, yeah. lighter sleeve, everything about the Whalers, it was kind of like, and I remember just thinking, that even at that age, this is like a kind of black rock band. In a yeah, way. absolutely. And no, he does then, doesn't he, Mark, talk a bit about how the conscious decision was to market yes. the Whalers as a kind of rock band. No, completely. He tried it again. I mean, obviously, Bob Marley then went on to be a phenomenal success. I mean, a worldwide success. Absolutely. But it didn't stick. The idea of this didn't stick. He tried it with Black Uhuru with a sort of limited degree of success. But... There was, he was, his intuition was right. There was something specifically about Bob Marley, which he knew he could sell to a white rock audience. Yes. He also talks, he says that the big leg up that Bob Marley got was Eric Clapton covering I Shot the Sheriff. Yes, indeed. Um, uh, which, so was, which was 74, wasn't it? Because that, which, that was which gave on Bob the Marley. Burning album and then, yeah. and then Clapton recorded it. It's interesting, actually, last week we had a piece about the making of 461 Ocean Boulevard. Yeah. And it was by Terry Staunton. And it was interesting to read that Clapton was slightly diffident about the idea of this being like the lead single. And was this the right thing to do? And, yeah. and almost like, should he be making a reggae, covering a reggae song at all? But it did blow reggae wide open, didn't it? No, absolutely. And it gave Bob Marley a sort of credibility with the white rock audience that otherwise he probably simply wouldn't have got. No, it's, it's, he then goes on, he talks about, his interest in what was then called world music, particularly with King Sunny Ade and Salif Keita, who yes. he, th- he thinks is one of the best artists he's best ever worked. Best singer in the world, he called Best him. singer in the world. Um, I he's love interesting Salif about Keita. K- King Sunny Ade saying that his first album was fantastic, but the second album was just more of the same. And the trouble is that Sunny Ade had been making records for years. Yeah, there were 40, uh, he says there were like 40 albums he'd made exactly. already at that point. So he wasn't, on that upward development, he wasn't on that upward developmental curve. Yeah. And so he obviously he's disappointed. He talks about how the music business was changing his passion for Marion Faithful's great broken English, isn't it? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Which, which is extraordinary. A um, key island album, definitely. Absolutely. He talks about Robert Palmer very fondly. This is the time when Robert Palmer just left the label. So 
There's kind of stuff going on. Then, of course, the massive success of U2, the unlikely signing of Anthrax. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's Um, funny. And he talks about the hologram deal and how difficult it is to remain independent. Yes. In a way, we've talked about this in previous episodes of the podcast. You either stay small or small, or you get big, big. But if you're in the middle, which is what Ireland were... Trying to do a worldwide deal with an artist and then find distribution and so on and so forth for every record is really hard. So, yeah, you know, I think a combination of his own tiredness by this point and the pragmatism resulted in the hologram deal, which he bitterly regretted later. Mm. It wasn't when I listening to Blackwell talking. I sort of <laughs> it makes me realise that you know for for many years I think I just had this he's this languorous kind of playboy tone. <laughs> And I sort of think, you know, it, he had the dream bloody job, this man, didn't he? I mean, he was kind of born with a silver spoon in his mouth to some degree. But to be able to conduct business in the way he's done, essentially living on the GoldenEye plantation, <laughs> Ian Fleming's gaff on Jamaica, and just, I mean, you know, you sort of thought, how can you run a record label, basically still be like living on the fucking beach in your swimming truck? You know, I mean, it just doesn't really seem fair. Well, I mean, it, 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 that's that's a slightly unfair. I mean, he I, really, I say it with great respect. Yeah, no, he really put in the hard yards in the early he. part of his career. I mean, he talked about enjoying going on tour with his bands. He'd be going on tour with the Spence Davis Group. He'd be going on tour with whoever. You know, at the time when he was managing, when a lot of managers wouldn't go on tour, they'd just chuck him into the hands of the roadie and leave him alone. You know, and as we said earlier, he just loves music. So, so yes, absolutely a silver spoon in his mouth. But virtually every decision he made, I think he made for the right reasons. Jasper, as someone who's slightly younger than your co-host, <laughs> what, what did you, what idea of, say, like Bob Marley did you grow up with? I'd just be interested to know. Bob Marley's one of those artists that one just hears everywhere, I think. Yeah. And certainly my first exposure to reggae I mean, as far as sort of records that were my parents' record collections and stuff, although actually in the area of Oxford that I grew up in, there's a fairly large Caribbean community, East Oxford. So at all of the street parties and that kind of thing, there'd always be someone DJing reggae. How much of that was island record stuff? I couldn't tell you. So that's sort of besides the point. But as far as Bob Marley, yeah, just this incredible, I mean, his face on T-shirts everywhere and that whole sort of laid back, stoner rastafarian image that's been commercialized to exactly. an nth degree you were sort of born into bob marley's world really. whereas mark and i sort of sort of we we weren't and we kind of saw the evolution of this of this icon yeah, right absolutely i mean bob marley is a sort of omnipresent kind of yeah. he's one of the gods of music as far as one can understand it in those worldwide terms he was just incredibly cool bob marley wasn't he i mean i always think why bob marley and a he was just fucking cool guy he was he was a badass not quite as much of a badass as peter tosh who really was a badass (laughs) but he, he there was something kind of edgy and dangerous about bob and he was just Fucking great songwriter. He, he was also yeah, they're just uh, great songs. He, he was uncompromisingly Jamaican and Rastafarian. Mm. I mean, he made a point of being virtually impossible to understand to white inter- interviewers. We've got by, a by, Marley audio, haven't we, on the site? Carl Dallas, and, and, and he, it, he could really it, lay it, the patois on, like like yeah. with, with, with a tr- with a trunk. <laughs> 
I mean, I, I saw Bob Marley in 1976, Hammersmith Odeon. I wish I'd seen the gig the year before at Lyceum, Lyceum yeah. you know. Um, and it was good, though he had an American league guitar player who's throwing entirely inappropriate rock guitar shapes, shapes. on the stage. Was that Al Anderson? Uh, no, it wasn't. It oh. was, oh, God, I can't remember who it was. But okay, anyway, yeah. no, I wish it had been Al Anderson because he's a much better player. I mean, he's, my favourite Bob Marley, late period Bob Marley album is Natty Dread with by a million miles. Well, no, that's not that late, is it? I mean, I love Nasty Drift. Yeah, I've got uh, my copy sitting here for later because well, I, I fell in love with every song on that record. Yeah, it's astonishing. I mean, I bought the first album I bought of his was the live album from the, the Lyceum show because No Woman No Cry, the live version of No Woman No Cry was such a huge hit. And then I instantly got, got Nasty Dread. And I still think it stands up as a fantastic record. He, I lost interest in him fairly rapidly after that. The more rock the production became, the more sort of glossy the production became, the less I found him compelling. I mean, the other thing that's interesting to note about a lot of the later albums, they're full of good songs, but those songs were written up to 10 years before they ended up on those albums, that Bob Marley was mining his own back catalogue in the last, certainly the last three or four albums, very, very heavily. Yeah. I mean, I've spoken to Chris Blackwell on the phone a couple of times, and I'm just remembering that, of course, he signed Tom Waits to Island Records. Yeah. You know, I mean, <laughs> when when Electra had sort of given up on him, Electra signed had given up on him and, and flew to L.A. to meet Tom and Kathleen, his wife. And I was saying, that's was pretty significant. And, of course, Swordfish Trombones comes out. I mean, it, I don't know that there are many other labels that would have empowered no. An artist like Waits to make a record that uncommercial. Yeah, I, I think it's it's it's, it's, it's astonishing. You know, I mean, it's helped that he had some such huge hits that they could bankroll of his, course. his, his risk taking. But of how the, how many other labels did that? Hardly no, but that's any. the point. You find a U two that makes you millions, and you can then spend that money imaginatively, yeah. can't you? You know, yeah. the list of acts on Island is just so diverse. It's mm-hmm. incredible, and and real quality in all sorts of different fields you know quality african music quality jamaican music quality british music yes. quality american music you know and and that's remarkable in and of itself that he was able to find and have confidence in his discoveries to that degree well and see it through i mean the one thing about blackwell exactly. is, is that he had real concern about the quality of everything that they released from the artwork to the production. And, for example, My Boy Lollipop, his first major hit, was the backing track was recorded... No, it wasn't, actually. That was recorded entirely in London, My Boy Lollipop, and it had things that reggae records didn't have, like string sections and things on there. You know, he thought about every aspect of what, what he did. He hired some of the best engineers and the best record producers. When it wasn't him himself producing, he hired the best that he could get. Well, I mean, I like all the great moguls. The secret of, of a successful mogul is the delegation, yeah. is finding talented, talented people to bring in 
the artist, you know. So we, you, you look at someone like Joe Boyd, mm. you look at someone like Richard Williams. Mm. There's a guy called Lyle Conway who ran Ireland Publishing, who mm-hmm. was really important and actually played a big part in bringing weights onto Ireland. So a big part of it is yeah. finding the great, the, the great yeah, loss no, of the great loss of Alex Sadkin, who was absolutely right. just one of the best engineers and co-producers around at that yeah. time, was re- basically responsible for the sound of those Grace Jones albums we're talking about, you know. There's a, this is a, actually a neat segue into Sparks is a piece that we're featuring as part of the Sparks feature, which is Lenny Kay writing about Island Records in 1975 for Hit Parader. Lenny Kay, of course, you know, one of the great American rock critics and then in the process of becoming, well, already Patti Smith's guitar player yeah. at this point. So it, it's a sort of encomium to Ireland. It's, it's, it's explaining why Ireland is now sort of, from even from an American perspective, the coolest label. They, you know, it used to be Electra, it was reprise for a bit. Even RCA had a moment when they were signing, you know, Lou Reed and David Bowie and Iggy Pop and all of that. But now he's saying Ireland is is kind of the hippest label, yeah. along with the artists. He, of course, talks about Roxy Music and Richard Williams played such a part in, in signing Roxy Music to Ireland. And then he, he mentions, of course, Sparks, um, yeah. who, <laughs> who are one of Ireland's biggest acts at this point. And so we're talking about Sparks because they have a new album out. I mean, this was going to be this, this magnificent year for Sparks with a new album, a tour and a documentary. And COVID has kind of scuppered the whole plan but they have released they've released their latest kind of wacky album which is called a steady drip 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 and we actually have one of our writers has sent us a piece which is essentially an interview with ron male from only just a few weeks ago about the new album and just the the enduring eccentricity <laughs> of ron and russ male but do you did you remember your first exposure to sparks i mean yeah, was it I, I mean i didn't love them yeah i think that i thought we'd i'd seen enough quirky shit over the previous two or three years <laughs> to sort of to last me a lifetime i mean they were an interesting pair of rogues you know one of them looking more or less like hitler and the other one looking <laughs> well, like hitler a sort of cross with charlie Chaplin. charlie Chaplin. um <laughs> and i found the music a bit too sort of herky-jerky. Does that make any sort of sense? There's this... Yeah. I mean, it's, a fasc- it's a fascinating little story. And we, you added just the other day, Mark, the very earliest piece we have on Sparks from 72, which is the late and lovely man, Andrew Tyler, interviewed them for Disc, I think, in 72. Yep. And so they've, you know, at th- this point, they're still in LA. And they're a band. And they're a band. Yeah, they're a band. And they've made one album with Todd Rundgren. Todd Rundgren took them to Albert Grossman. They were signed to, they were the least Bearsville act you could possibly <laughs> imagine. Um, and, and Tyler's very funny about that. And, and he sort of has this, this is, he almost suggests this, this idea of, of the male brothers coming to Woodstock and having a hamburger named after them at Albert's restaurant. It was, it was Albert who called them, he suggested they be called, they were called Half Nelson. That's right. And and he said you should be called Sparks Brothers. I mean, I, I don't really, really know, rhyme with Marx Brothers, and they reminded him of the Marx Brothers or something. And so, and then, but then fast forward, 
from Andrew's piece, and they they come to London and they sort of they kind of hitch their their wagon to the whole glam thing that's going on there. Yeah, I mean, we got this great clip coming up. This is Ron Mayle talking about precisely that about coming to London. It's, yes, it's, it's great stuff. This, this town was was just about big enough for the both of them <laughs> at that point. <laughs> Aside from just a musical thing, that song really means a lot to us because we had had two albums out mm-hmm. in the States that sold probably maybe 4,000 each or something, they told us. And then, so Russell and I, we the, the band, the, that early band had toured in England, and when we came back, things were just at a point where even the Whiskey Go-Go wouldn't let us play anymore. And so, and that was kind of our lifeblood, as it, as it were. And, and so Russell and I got an offer from Island Records to sign with them in England, but, but they only wanted the two of us. Right. I mean, I, I think that's fascinating. So again, this is probably Blackwell. He's, you know, he, he'd probably seen them on their tour of, of England and thought, those two are interesting. Shame yeah. about the rest of it, you know. Yes. It's quite possible, isn't it? It's the sort of thing he'd have done. I mean, I, so I'm holding up, for, for listeners who can't say, I'm holding up the copy of another of the er- earliest albums on Ireland that I bought is, is Kimono in My House. Because I did really love this talent big enough for the both of us. And I and I like Amateur Hour and other another um, talent as an asset. There are rather great songs on here. I mean, they were really camp. They were slightly They're incredibly absurd. camp. It's so funny. I mean, all of like that top of the pops video of. Oh, you've of, seen that, Jasper? Have you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. where where <laughs> the I, I don't know their names, but the one with the mustaches is, is Ron standing Ron, up playing yeah. playing the keyboard and just not doing anything. <laughs> the other one is completely sort of. Yeah, it's great. It's, it's, they're, they're so camp and so strange. I don't know about their music, really. I've only heard maybe that track and a few I others. Mean, in, in, but... in image terms, I'd say the band they influenced the most was Cheap Trick of All People. A little bit, you're right. You know, the, the, they had this sort of mixture of, mixture of like the, the blonde lead singer with tumbling locks yes. and the rest of them like madmen of some description of it. I bet Cheap Trick clocked what sparks are doing and thought we can do that you know to differentiate themselves from all the other rock and roll bands around at the time well it hadn't occurred to me i think you're probably right there's a funny story and i think it's andrew tyler's piece that charlie charlie chaplin did actually see them on (laughs) american bandstand and sort of wrote in approvingly (laughs) 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 i mean they have what i think is interesting is that Despite having never been a massively successful band, they had that they had this period. I mean, they, they've had hits. I mean, number one song in heaven was it was a hit. So you know they've had the odd hit, but they've never been like hugely successful. But they have they've just kept going for fifty years, yeah. and and every so often they make a record which gets the attention of people who like sort of quirky art pop. The one that I really like was Lil Beethoven from a few years ago. <laughs> I mean, it's daft, it's silly, but there's a wonderful song on it that I absolutely love called When Do I Get to Play Carnegie Hall? <laughs> Which is just, it's, yeah. it, but, you know, every so often they, they make 
a, a track that um, restores my interest. In. Yeah, I mean, you've um, got a, obviously got a much higher um, <laughs> tolerance, tolerance of, uh, for uh, quirky art pop. <laughs> 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 well, and the new album is full of, of quirky art pop. There's, there's a song called Self-Effacing on it. Which, which... I mean, you know, them going to Ireland, given the fact that Roxy Music's relationship with Ireland and so on and so forth, they were a fit in that actually... If you're going to talk about quirky art pop, that's the highest I'll go, which is the first two Roxy Music albums. Uh, and Sparks are a logical signing in, in, in the light of Roxy Music of that time. Particularly. Yeah, absolutely. So new Sparks album, Edgar Wright's documentary may be with us before the end of the year. Edgar Wright, who directed like Baby Driver and stuff. So this is a serious guy. It's not just any other doc. Yeah, yeah. I think it'd probably be quite fun. It makes funny I, films, so hopefully the, the doc will yeah, be fun. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I think we do need to just mention the passing of the great Phil May, lead singer of The Pretty Things, who who died in the week. Um, this was kind of like the Mick Jagger who... Who, who never was. He's sort of the man who should have been Mick Jagger. We've got three pieces about the pretty things. And we have, which you'll hear at the end, a clip from Johnny Black's great audio interview with Phil from 1995. I mean, he had the longest hair in, in at that point. I mean, even in 65, he had hair, not down to his arse, yeah. but, 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 but it was long. dropping below his shoulders. Yeah. Uh, so he's uh, interesting about that. Well, he, he basically talks about, I mean, we, we'll play the clip at the end, but uh, he talks about how when he was at art school and he had long hair. I know he was a classic art school rock and roller, the, the great yeah. tradition of British when art school. he was at Sid Cup Art College with Keith, Keith Richards, Keith Richards was in yeah. the year yeah. above him. <laughs> and and, and the, the thing was that you, if you went out, went home late from the art school by yourself with long hair, yeah. the mods would basically beat, beat you up. Beat the crap out yeah. of you. Now, the thing is, this never changed. When I was at Holland Park School in 1968, 69, exactly the same really? thing. Oh, yeah, us, all of us you know, hippies, the, the, yeah. the, the 300 or so hippies in a school of 2,500, would be set upon relentlessly by the skinheads. Yeah. You, you know, exactly. I mean, so, so it, you know, and I remember the very, one of the first shows I went to in 69 was Soft Machine in Hyde Park. And the skinheads who had helped the police evict the squatters from 144 Piccadilly turned up in the park and were just picking off hippies around the edge of the crowd like Seriously. like jackals, yeah. yeah. It, was, it was scary old times yeah. to, look, to look weird. Well, so we got, three, we, got, we got three pieces, or two pieces in one audio, and Phil May was a, was a great guy, and they never quite made it, really, even yeah. once they were signed to Led Zeppelin's label, and one of the pieces talks about that. But he's an interesting guy, I have to say, and an important man, the kind of story of 60s British pop. And talking of British pop, the featured writer of the week is, as previously mentioned, the splendidly named Ray Fox Cumming, who sounds like a character on the Fast Show, really. But he was Ray was one of the, it was an interesting guy because he wrote on Disc and Music Echo or Disc, as it was at that point, and he very much made the, the sort of emerging glam scene, his yeah, yeah. beat, where, where some of the older writers were probably poo-pooing it. Ray got in there and he did all the interviews with like Bowie, not just Bowie, but one of the interviews we're featuring is with Lou Reed when he's in town having done the Transformer album. No, he, he was doing it. He was actually he was making Transformer at the time. You know, he'd, his first solo album had come out just a few months before and hadn't done a great deal. Correct. No, Ray, Ray Fox coming is really interesting. He, he becomes sort of Boswell to all of that sort of group, you know. Yes. He wrote extensively about Mott the Hoople, just as Mott the Hoople were becoming yes. Bowieized and so on. And, and so about forth. Sweet. And one of the pieces is, is this great little piece about going to see her taking the top of the pops. 
and Nikki Chin is there, feeling terribly guilty because it is looking as though mud tiger feet <laughs> is going to is going to depose sweet from the top of the charts and this wasn't part of the rack chinny chat plan <laughs> sweet was supposed to stay at the top for a couple of weeks and then mud would get it's very really interesting just how machiavellian it is yeah. and then what happened is emi who distributed rack released prematurely mud's tiger feet which then roared to the top and Sweet were knocked off, and Sweet were very cross. Yeah. No, I, I, I really, I really like Ray's writing, yeah. uh, and I think he kind of gets the whole feel of that time and those sorts of people yes. brilliantly. Yes. With, without carting the sort of ex underground press snobbery, no. which, which I'm for, the, the NME were much less tolerant. I mean, Charlie Murray accepted who was a very early Bowie acolyte. Bowie-ophile, quite early on. Bowie-ophile. Mm. You know, you know the, the, the enemy, and to some extent Melody Maker, sort of struggled with all this sort of stuff. Well, or they treated it almost too seriously. Well, I, Ray Fox coming sort of got what it was about really well. The piece on Lou is great. It's called, um, it's called The Black Sheep of New York, I think. Yeah, The Black Sheep of New York, October 72. And they meet in a pub on Curzon Street in Mayfair. And Lou is clearly badly hung over, not long out of bed, says Ray. <laughs> Has the reputation of making journalists feel uneasy, Ray notes. <laughs> um, well, that's a, a bloody understatement. And talking of bloody, he says a, a couple of bloody Marys sets Lou right, and they managed to do the interview. And it's interesting what you said about transfer. I don't know what transformer was technically out at this point because it it may have been i'm I'm not i don't think it was quite out but i think it was just it was it was coming out at the end of the month coming out the end of the month so so it's because towards the end of the interview ray asks lou why the title transformer and lou goes well haven't you seen the cover i can just imagine lou saying it you know haven't you seen the cover it's divine (laughs) <laughs> this, this very well-hung stud looking into a mirror and looking back at him is this beautiful girl. There's a lot of sexual ambiguity in the album and two outright gay songs from me to them, but they're carefully worded so the straights can miss out on the implications and enjoy them without being offended. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it's an important gay album transformer in many ways, isn't it? I think, you know, that, that, the well-hung stud with the kind a, of cucumber in his pants. That's, that's, that's right. It's a fantastic record. It's, <laughs> it it's, a, a, really, it's a really record. fantastic record. So that's Ray Fox coming. Excellent. And I think that brings us to, well, the end of the sort of featured stuff and the audio and all of that on RBP. So, in fact, we, we've got a new panel on the homepage now called Don't Fear the Reaper, and that's where Phil May will be residing this week. We're so tasteful. We're so it's tasteful. so tasteful. We're nothing <laughs> if not tasteful. I think Phil would, would have forgiven us. I hope so. No offence intended. Mark, why don't you talk to us about the yeah. new library pieces. Yeah, I got some pretty good stuff here, as I do every week. Starting off uh, again on new writer, the late Philip Elwood, the San Francisco Examiner, November 68. And this is absolutely our earliest article about Santana. Uh, he goes to see them at the Matrix, which is a North Beach San Francisco club, rock club, which I believe the Jefferson Airplane had some part Jeff, of ownership. Very early in. on, the Matrix was really important, even in '65. So I really enjoyed getting this because it's at the Matrix for a start. Yeah, and it's it's kind of 
Santana Mark One. A lot of people who were members of the band when they hit big a year later or just under a year later at Woodstock weren't in the band. So he's got Marcus Malone on congas, Greg Rowley, who of course uh, um, was right through the story. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Bob Livingston was the drummer who's gone. David Brown was retained as the bass player. He says it's a loud, racially mixed hard rhythm group and potentially a major force hereabouts. Big record companies have their eyes on Santana. But before they are ready for a full LP, the band has to expand and become far more versatile. When they get into their driving beat stuff, there is hypnotic magnetism, no denying that. But often Santana seems to lean only that, only in that direction, with little melodic relief, vocal variety or tempo originality. And he's absolutely right, because those are the things that they introduced over the, f- the following year. Right. Yeah. Which meant that it wasn't just an endless sort of like salsa rock kind of crash, you know. Sure. I think that's a really kind of good analytical bit bit of writing, bit of criticism. Second piece, Record Mirror, David Hancock, February 75. And it's an interview with Hamilton Bohannon, who died mm-hmm. not so long Very ago. Recently, yeah. And it's, you know, he comes over as a very charming guy. Uh, he said, he signed up with Brunswick following advice from Quincy Jones and hit straight over the Stop and Go, a track, track picked up by the American discos in 1972. But South Africa man wasn't consciously aimed at the disco market, he confessed. I was shocked but pleased when I heard the discos were playing it. It took off first in Philadelphia and then was picked up in New York. Now they're saying something about me being the disco king. Now, first of all, this is 1975, yeah. and the term disco hadn't become cemented in the way that it was by 77, 78. The, I think the, was the first, was my first, really, awareness of that term disco. Absolutely. I find it very interesting that David Hancock and Hamilton Bohannon are talking about disco as an entity in itself. When it... Hasn't it quite crystallised. Exactly, yeah, yeah. exactly. So I, it's just I think, short for discotheque at this point, isn't it? Well, yeah, gone. yes, t- technically. But but uh, I mean, they are actually talking about it as a, as a, genre a sort of, of genre, as a form yeah. of music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he was in a sense the godfather of disco. You know, in a kind of slightly tangential way. Yeah, I, him, him, and Manu Dibango, people yeah, like that. Yeah. There was a bunch of them, key you know, records. The, the, the people that David Mancuso was playing at the loft parties around precisely this time, and so on and so forth. So. Next piece is from 77. It's live review of John Fahey. Is that how you pronounce it? Well, I would Fahey? say Fahey, but it's quite Fahey. hard. Fahey. John Fahey. Fahey. Uh, at the <laughs> it's, quite, it's hard to say Fahey in a voice that isn't Fahey. <laughs> this is uh, Los Angeles Time, Richard Cromeland. And he says, the beginning of the set suffered from repetition as Fahey exercised at length in a simple open tuning. But when he began to modify the chords and develop his basic themes, the music opened up considerably, moving to areas of classical stateliness and rather gothic brand of blues, which is kind of quite a nice way of describing what we both yeah. like Faye a great deal. The um, great American primitivist. Yes, uh, fascinating Foster. guy. I mean, you know, you, 
I'm, I'm still not sure which his stuff I like the most because he was a very early adopter of echoes, echoes chambers of using loops and things like that. You know, he was quite advanced. I had a very distorted idea of fake. It's the first album I bought and the only one I owned for a long time was an album called After the Ball, mm-hmm. which was on reprise and wasn't at all like his his fairly kind of out there primitivist stuff of of. Well, um, either before or after, it was uh-huh. quite, it was quite a lushly sort of arranged with with sort of horns and strings. Right, and right. So, so it was only later that I kind of began to kind of understand what Faye was really about. But yeah. um, interesting guy, really interesting guy. Yeah. Really, the Pretenders sounds seventy nine. Pete Silverton basically hanging out with in a disastrous night up north of sort of gigs going wrong and so on and so forth. Seventy nine. They hadn't quite hit big yet, had they? I think Brass in Pocket had only just come out. I couldn't remember exactly what year, what I mean, sorry, what month, but it yeah. was... Yeah, uh, but uh, anyway, they're still playing crummy gigs around. Are they? They're still playing crummy gigs at this point, because Stop Your Sobbing has been a hit, and Kid, no, you would think. No, no, because no, because Brass in Pocket was the first hit, was, was their it? first hit, yeah. I thought Stop Your Sobbing no. was a hit. We we can bicker about that later. I'm pretty sure Brass in Pocket was the. the I don't want to bicker first. with you, Mark. Over, oh, yeah, I know you, you even do. over issues as important as this, especially on Zoom. <laughs> anyway, Chrissy Hines says my statement. Jasper, is in- fact check for me, please. <laughs> anyway, she says my statement is in the action. My interest, my interest is in writing a song and playing it with the band, and after that, it's finished. What she's saying is that once she's written a song and recorded it. She's not interested anymore. She doesn't look back at all. She says, I don't even save copies of the record and news clippings. In other words, I don't revel in the product. I just like making the product, mm. which is, you know, good, tough. Stop Your Sobbing got to number 34. Okay. Did, oh, is that me standing corrected then? Yes. You decide whether that number 34 <laughs> in the top 40 is worthy of being titled a hit. I suppose it's technically not, it did well, hit... The top 40, but... I'll tell you what it is. It's a top 40 hit. Anyway, <laughs> moving on. Yeah, Sheena Easton album. Take, her first album, Take My Time. Savaged by Betty Page and Sounds in January. She won. It's absolutely great. It's a really long review. And she goes through each song, literally number one, number two, number three, and tells you what the song's about. And it's like, and my, when, my, when my guy's coming home and I get his meal together, and it's hilarious. Because remember, that was the My Baby take, Takes the Morning it's Train It's 9 period. to 5 on that album. It's, I think it is, yeah. Because that was that... Sheena Mark 1, wasn't it? Yeah, Sheena as Mark opposed to, As opposed to Sugar, <laughs> sugar Walls, Sheena. <laughs> you got to look. But, yes, when we get to slamming and all that sort of stuff. So... <laughs> yeah, yeah. So... This, this Sheena wasn't slamming. <laughs> no, she certainly wasn't. So this is, this is that, almost one of the last paragraphs. She says, so now you know what exactly to do. 12 easy lessons on how to deal with your man and still remain a law unto yourself especially designed for all you lonely housewives out there who'd like to share that your fantasies with Sheena and let her solve your problems too. The main thing is to stay at home, remain soply starry-eyed, and have the slippers and pipe at the ready. Not stay alert. <laughs> Not stay alert. <laughs> you know about this piece, Barney, but Michael Watts's Sunday Times 1983 oh, interview with Joni Mitchell, yeah, which, is, yeah. which is pretty terrific. And I just, I just love this one quote. It's actually on... I believe going to be on the homepage is I wrote with a feeling that my troubles when transformed into something beautiful would transcend gossip 
which is, of course, complete foolishness on my part. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's really good. She's great. I mean, she's a great interview, isn't she? I mean, I haven't read that piece for for a long time. So, but is it when? What's the album that's just come out? Is it I Wild could, Wild Things Run Fast or something? She's kind of back you. on, and she's on Geffen's own label, and she's being sort of, you know, positioned as as someone who could who could have some big pop hits and right, working then with her then really relatively new husband, Larry Klein. That's exactly, right. exactly. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, she's always just worth reading an interview. That's for sure. Previous podcast guest, the fabulous Lucy O'Brien, interviewing Roxanne Chante in For the Enemy in 1987. It's a lot of it is about how she's treated as a woman rapper at a time when there really weren't very many of them around. She said, after a while, it was, I don't want her to go on tour with me, or she's good, but she ain't that good. I found it hard to mix and mingle. When I first started out, male rappers reckoned I was going to be successful. But when I was, they resented it. I bet they did, you yeah, know. Sure. 1989, again, another fabulous guest we've had, David Toop for The Times, reviewing, among other things, well, Babyface and a few other things, but NWA's Straight Out of Compton. Now, this is a time when that record, by most of the white music press, was really disliked people didn't like the the music press didn't like that record because it was full of all the stuff they hated about what became known as gangster rap and well it was frightening wasn't it, it was I mean, frightening. I can only imagine what times readers well exactly thought of but it. this is what david toop says and i, I think he's he's very really interesting about this nwa are probably correct in thinking that popular music is an ineffective vehicle for criticizing the young or altering deeply rooted social ills They've decided to document the disturbing events that are a regular occurrence in their neighbourhood. The full pelt excitement of the music gives an occasional air of glorification to the exercise. But in the main, this is a nightmarish record. It's sound effects of police sirens, gunshots and screeching tires, depicting a generation virtually in the throes of war. Which I think is a really, really good take on astute, it. Astute, that. Yeah. You know, Very astute. Fantastic you know, record. Still sounds... I, I, I agree. I, I, I agree. Fantastic, no. Last thing I want to talk about is, it's a big piece it's called The Devil's Work, The Plundering of Robert Johnson, written by Robert Gordon for LA Weekly in 1991. And this is a story I had no idea about. It's about how two bluesologists, basically professional bluesologists, at separate times met members of Robert Johnson's family, a guy called Mac McCormick and another guy called Stephen Lavier. Mac McCormick came across, I think, Robert Johnson's, like, half-sister or something. And he was the guy who got those first two photographs we all know about, yeah? And got them signed to him so he has the rights to them. Then a little while later, this guy, Stephen Levere, comes along, meets the same person, gets more photographs, of which one has just been released, I saw this week, on the cover That's of... That's correct. The, it's, it's yeah. Of the four... The four people was uh, sitting at no, a table, correct? No, because there's so a new photo. It, yeah, there's an, all of which I think are part okay. of the Stephen Levere collection. Okay, he, he also got them to sign over the copyrights of Johnson's songs, right? Yeah, and then it goes into this whole thing about this the, the dispute between these two men, Levere claiming ownership. That eventually, the massive albums, the complete recordings coming out, 
how so little of the money was reaching the family, how no one was quite sure who were the actual heirs. It's yeah. just about the whole industry which surrounds the, the legacy right. of Robert Johnson. And it's absolutely fascinating. Oh, it's also okay. really depressing. Yeah, sure. That's my lot. On that downbeat note, I'll hand over to you guys. <laughs> wow, interesting stuff. Jasper, I'll hand over to you and just to start, just briefly mention three things that stood out for me. One was... An interview for, I think it's a New York publication called Guilt and Pleasure, which which was about kind of being Jewish and hip. It was a sort of, it was, it was a, a magazine of Jewish hipness. And Alan Light, Rolling Stone spin writer, interviewed Mark Ronson about, you know, about being Jewish. It's, it's, it's really funny. It's very oh, yeah. interesting. There's a retrospective piece about the famous Tammy show, the T-A-M-I show, which was one of the great TV pop shows in America. It was a one-off show from 64, I think it was. Wasn't it, Mark, the Tammy show? And yes. So they had, yeah. everyone was on it. It was, it was an incredible mixture of kind of James Brown, Motown artists, um, the Stones, the only act kind of that wasn't on it. I mean, the Beach Boys were on it. The Beatles weren't on it because I think whatever the hell they were doing, they were touring. But it's just this incredible thing, which you can see. It's online, I think. And it's one of the defining kind of moments of 60s pop. Finally, a piece from 2011 by Colin Irwin about Cecil Sharp, who was oh. a great sort of self-appointed kind of folk collector in london and you know did the trips we talked about folkways last week but this is a piece it's it's very much kind of like he's not quite as sainted a figure as you might think the real naysayers who have a bit of a pop at him in this piece cecil sharp house still exists in uh, yeah, up in still, camden still, still there important so in terms of folk he, being he played in london very important I figure mean, we, we, but, we, but there are there are plenty of people yeah, who well, say yeah but you know well like pete siegel we were talking result. about last like pete yeah. siegel you were talking about last week is that they had very clear ideas of what they thought constituted folk and what i mean cecil sharp was horrified when people introduced things like electric guitars and sure. the folk territory. Mm, exactly. he, was, he was a real stodgy stick in the mud. And also, I believe, very strong set of political convictions. And if you don't, didn't abide by his, yeah. his, his line... He doesn't come out of this piece terribly well. But Good. So I learned a little bit about, about that. Jasper, handing over to you. Well, actually, interesting, because it, it makes a nice segue from what you just God, talked about. We love about. a segue, don't we? We oh. do. We do love a segue. So this is Francis Morgan writing in The Wire in September 2014, again about folk music, about field recordings, which ties in what we were talking about last week, about folkways. But this is about folk tracks, Peter Kennedy's label. So Francis Morgan reviews four albums from various different places around the British Isles. The Barley Mow field recordings in a film made in Suffolk in the 1950s. The Flax in Bloom traditional songs, airs and dance music in Ulster. Good Humour for the Rest of the Night traditional dance music in Northumberland and Cumberland. And Orkney traditional dance music from Orkney. So, Mark, it's right up your street, isn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. Thumbs aloft. <laughs> <laughs> but Frances Morgan, it's an interesting review. She, I think, likes best the Ulster set, describes it as the jewel of this batch of releases, but makes the point, and this, I think, contrasts interestingly with Mo Ash. As enjoyable as these recordings are, I felt collusive in the erasure of the people who sang them. Kennedy has come in for posthumous criticism for his careless, some say exploitative attitude towards musicians, as well as for doctoring recordings for release on his folk tracks label. Whether this is justified or not, 
that these skilled musicians are left so anonymous is an indictment not just of Kennedy, but of the casual racism and class prejudices of the time. Uh, and I think that's really interesting because it does form such a stark contrast with Mo Ash, who produced yeah, yeah. those lavish booklets with all this information, and there was this sort of love for the music, whereas this kind and of... And the musicians, and, yeah, yeah, and the musicians. And the musicians, yeah. whereas that's not the case for these recordings, all of which are sort of various artists, without really giving them the care and attention that they would sure. be due. Okay. So I thought that was an interesting piece to talk about this week. Then I'll jump back a bit to an article by Caroline Sullivan in The Guardian in October 2005, which is about her supposition about the possible death of the album. Why insist on 50 minutes of music when you could have a perfect 10, or better still, a single? And it's sort <laughs> of a funny funny piece, I think, sort of prompted by, by Warner, who are supposedly proposing to release clusters of three or four songs online only, as opposed to albums, right. kind of every few months rather than every two years sort of thing. And I, I don't know, that's, that has sort of happened in a way. You get more EPs nowadays, I think, extended well, I, I, plays. I, I think various things have driven this process through, from, let's say, the introduction of the CD in the mid-80s. The mid is, first of all, the CD allowed you to have far more music on an album. Yep. Let's say you could get 70 minutes. You could get, really get no more than 40 minutes on a single vinyl disc yep. to, for it to sound any good. So then you got this thing of people actually deciding they had to fill those 70 minutes, particularly in black music and R&B and, and hip-hop, hip-hop, particularly. So the albums became massive, long and sprawling. Then you started getting file sharing and the internet and so on and so forth. And then the sort of notion of an album sort of starts collapsing, which is what... And people can cherry pick their favourite songs in a way that you couldn't before. With online downloads, you know, people obviously could previously buy singles, but the label decided which single they were going to sell, whereas now Uh, people uh, can just buy the single of their choice, so to speak. But but subsequently, the revival of vinyl yeah. is beginning to return us to the classic 40-minute album yeah. again. You know, I actually think that the 40-minute album is almost a perfect format. I think the 20-minute side is almost a perfect format. Yeah. The, the most music, 20 minutes is just about all you really want to listen to, you know. Yeah. But actually, yeah, actually most of this turns out to be about Caroline Sullivan's own predilections and preferences. Yeah, sure. Life is too cluttered to give house room to albums which, with only one good track, which sadly describes more than you'd think. If you can't listen to an album all the way through without thinking it's 20 minutes too long, there's no point having it. If it has one track I like, I tape it and <laughs> give the album away. Brutal. <laughs> it's like Stalin. Well, she, you know, I mean, how many albums are that good? Very few. It's true. Quite. You know, I mean... <laughs> it's true. And that's why she doesn't have very many albums, as she yeah. herself describes. I don't know, I think it's interesting because, I mean, she's sort of heralding this sort of idea of how much greater the thrill when it's 10 perfect minutes there's nothing wrong with the idea of 50 minutes of music designed to be heard as a complete body of work i don't know i to me i think that there is if you can create a, a really brilliant album that is actually that does actually become something more than just 10 perfect minutes or a perfect and then of course minutes. who decides what the 10 perfect minutes are we'd all we'd all disagree over even our favorite albums wouldn't we as yeah. to what are the best tracks and you know, i'll like this track and you won't you know etc so and I do think, caroline I mean, but, would very that would be her that would you'd expect that from caroline and being, part of her point is queen. that it's about sort of the way that the rock press kind of lifts up the album as this fetishizes it yeah you know but i I do think that truly great albums are something 
beyond just a collection of truly great songs. And I think that's what makes them interesting. But so that's an interesting right. sort of piece of, and I think Mark, your point about vinyl kind of bringing back sort of the 40 minute album in some, in some respects, this is at a point in time, 2005, when that's Before. not yet the case. So that's yeah. interesting. And then going back again. So we're going backwards this week because I wanted to start with that folk piece. We're regressing. We're regressing. 2002, <laughs> Lisa Verico reviews in The Times, Buster Rhymes' Genesis and Beverly Knight's Who I Am. And uh-huh. she rather likes Buster Rhymes. Buster Rhymes is back and boy, do we need him. In what must go down as the most dismal month in UK singles chart history, Will <laughs> doing Westlife, Rick Waller doing Whitney, Goody Two Shoes Gareth, the gruff-voiced Brooklyn-born rapper is proof that there is still some room for rebellion in pop. On his decidedly un-PC new hit single, Break Your Neck, Buster spews expletives like Eminem on amphetamine, crams more words into one deep breath than Gareth could manage in an entire afternoon, and insults half the population of the planet to a backdrop of Dr. Dre's bouncy beats. At last, a pop song your gran won't approve of. (laughs) <laughs> which i think is great she's less convinced by beverly knight but she does rather like this new buster album good, good. buster was a was a cove wasn't he i i saw him perform once in new york and he was he was pretty wild i mean one forgets what what sort of just eccentric character he was when he first but what was his first record i mean late mid to late 90s ish i think yeah i think i saw him yeah, playing about 96 96 the coming i think was his first yeah. album yeah so break your fucking neck bitches yeah 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 here we go now tell me what you really want to do come here man talk to a nigga talk to me you look like you can really give it to a nigga but nobody you're talking about you try to walk for me the way you really try to put it on the guard doing it like i never did before for me the way you break your back and i break your beverly knight is a classic sort of person who's almost designed to end up in the supper clubs in her late 30s you know i mean just i think you were the bland the blandest of brit soul as you can imagine you know? to be fair knight's poppy songs are never less than pleasant and unlike some of her peers she really can sing moreover she looks the part with her glossy highlighted hair sexy outfits and big colgate smile it's just yeah, that they... knight's music never blows you away no, of course it doesn't. How many really un- uninteresting artists have there been who've been like prefaced with the phrase "she really can sing" or "he really can sing"? You know, I mean, one has heard that about so many artists over over like thirty, forty years, and it's like it's it's not enough. Well, no. I, it makes it actually makes you think that the ability to sing is the last thing you actually want in an interesting. It's much artist. more widespread than you than you realise. I think when I was growing up, I thought only a handful of people could sing. You know, you realise with these, you know, all, all the sort of TV talent shows. They're just, I mean, everyone and their nephew can can yeah, sing yeah. now, and it, it's just not a kind of qualification. No, it just no, it really is something more. So, yeah. on that note, that's it from me. <laughs> I thought you might, I thought you were going to break into song there for a moment, Nearison. Unlikely. Um, anyway, um, yeah, we're going to go out with this clip about being beaten up by the proto skinheads film at art school in, I guess, about nineteen sixty-two. Do we have a guest next week, Barney? We do. We have the great John Ingham coming in. Oh, to talk fantastic! To us about sounds and about being in LA in the seventies. He was. He was. You know. He was one of the earliest rock critics. As he it saw the Sex out. Pistols' last ever. And show. then, and then he was the guy who who wrote very key pieces about punk. He's a very amusing man. I'm yeah. very very fond of him. I have a huge amount of respect for John. So we're really looking forward to that. I hope Excellent. to have lots of interesting guests, either on Zoom or. 
back in our actual office in London. But that's it from us today. We'll hope to see you. We'll be heard by you next <laughs> week. And um, we will say once again, farewell to the pretty things, Phil May. Bye. See you next week. Bye. Bye-bye. I'm on my own. Just want to roll. It was like being in a war state, really. We used to have to go home from the art school in twos and fours. I mean, you never went home alone on a bus because if any of the uh, Bexley boys caught you, uh, you know, travelling on a 229 alone, you were, you were dead meat. I mean, serious. I mean, you'd wait for somebody. If they had to print something up or, or waiting for some etchings to dry, you'd hang around for 10 o'clock because... Or, it, you know, you might have finished, but two other people either side of you were still waiting to use a machine or the printing press... You would wait to go with them because you, you set off alone. I mean, a couple of us did it a few times. Mm. And, you know, you, you were lucky to make the journey, which mm. is about an hour and a half journey home, without bumping into somebody who sort of felt you were a kind of indictment to, to humankind. Yeah. yeah, well, they just thought, you know, you should be obliterated. Really. I say I think this life is great. That was Phil May in conversation with Johnny Black in 1995, concluding this week's Rocks Back Pages podcast. The hosts were Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Muris and Bowie. The Rocks Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com. Don't burn me down.